Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Changing the Game. We hope you enjoy learning about the unique journeys of our guests and the valuable insights they share on diversity and innovation in business. Remember to keep following your passions and never be afraid to think differently and challenge the status quo. Don't forget to subscribe to our show and follow us on social media for more inspiring stories and valuable information on startups, investments, and entrepreneurship. And special thanks to our partner, Vichy Ventures, for powering this show. Changing the Game is powered by Vichy Ventures, the venture partner that dares founders aim for the extraordinary and will nurture the innovation ecosystems of 1 million seeds. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating and reviewing the show on your preferred podcast platform. It will help us to grow and to make sure more people get access to the valuable information and inspiration we share on changing the game. Thanks for listening. Hello, everyone. We're here for another episode of Changing the Game. Uh, thank you for joining us, for being listening. So today is a very special day for me. So I have a special guest, uh, Kath Rogers. Uh, she is the GP of the Antler Australia Fund. Uh, she came all the way to from Sydney to Perth today, so I have her here face to face with me. Very uh, big privilege. So Kath, uh, uh, welcome. Thank you, great to be here, thanks Wilson. So we, uh, we do have a whole lot of uh, information that we can get from your profile when we look at LinkedIn, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, but here I have a privilege to ask you uh, more personally. So uh, what do you like to share about your story, your, your story of CAF, not necessarily the GP in a fund. So who is CAF? Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, a combination of things um, in my background, there's some consistent themes that I can see over time. The first thing I did um, out of university was work in a startup. Uh, so this was a, a very long time ago, um, back in London in what became known as the dot-com bubble. Um, and I worked for about a year um, as one of the first hires in uh, a B2B platform for construction in Europe, um, which was run by Mark Schuster, who became a really well-known VC based out of LA. Um, So I always had that interest in technology and innovation. Uh, When I moved back to Australia, I did sort of typical things in consulting and banking. So you touched on previously, spent some time with with Credit Suisse and and in Latin America. Um, But there I was exposed to private equity clients in particular. Um, and developed a real interest in the idea of investing. Um, I spent quite a bit of my career and and time studying outside Australia. So initially in London, uh, then in New York and Latin America. Um, I did my MBA in France and Singapore. uh, And then I moved to Abu Dhabi and worked in a, a sovereign wealth fund doing global VC investing focused on clean tech. So, um, and one of the things I did in between there as well was, was a little stint at the World Bank. So I was interested in having a career that had a global focus, that had some level of impact or meaning for me personally, um, had some exposure to technology and innovation, um, but also was about investing. So, so I think where I find myself now is a confluence of all those things at Antler, where you know, it's a, a global early stage firm, 25 locations, as you know. 
Um, it's obviously all about technology and innovation um, and backing great founders, building the declining companies of tomorrow. Um, and you know, we're investors, we're um, seeking to make um, exceptional returns for our investors, divest investing across a really diverse portfolio of opportunities that we can do diligence on over a period of months. Wow. So uh, there's so much to unpack there. So you talk about a startup here some time ago. So mm -hmm. I reckon that like me, so we didn't call it startup at that point in time. We're entrepreneurs maybe. Mm -hmm. So talk about uh, startups and, and private equity funds and sovereign uh, funds and well, that's a lot. So mm -hmm. very cool. So what about that? Uh, so you talk about having your first job into a startup out mm -hmm. of university. So how that happened? So was that uh, what did you study? Was that mm -hmm. part of what you study? What how that came out? Why start up and not a traditional job? Yeah, no, I think it was really serendipity. Um, I always had the the challenge of being very interested in in a lot of different things, and sometimes as as you find more and more, there's a, a burden of choice. Um, so I'd studied um, commerce and law at university. And I was choosing between, at the time, do I do um, my honours in university and, and get a cadetship with the Reserve Bank? Do I um, switch over to medicine um, or do I start working in finance? I've done some um, internships in university uh, in investment banking, in mergers and acquisitions. Um, and so there was also this rite of passage that Australian university students will often go and spend a year or two traveling after they graduate university. So I decided to consider what I wanted to do um, and decided to, to live in London with many of my friends. Uh, and I was just looking for, looking for work. Um, I used to read the Financial Times every day, so I was interested in that um, and came across um, an opportunity. So it was really just serendipity and being in the right place at the right time. And, I sent off an, an application, which I think was probably a couple of pages long, explaining who I was and why I should work there. And I think almost out of curiosity, they invited me in for an interview. Um, and it ended up being a, a really great group of, led by Mark Schuster, consultants who'd come out of what was then Anderson, Consultants, uh, Anderson Consulting Strategy Practice. Um, and they were able to um, attract some other really great talent from the likes of BCG and others um, and start building this firm which was backed at the time by Goldman Sachs and Ventures. Um, so I was in the first 10 hires um, and was just that sort of jack of all trades in a startup, sort of doing a little bit of everything, helping with marketing and strategy and you know whatever needed to be done. Very cool. So it's interesting that you, uh, you talk about serendipity and talk about these things. Uh, there is one uh, one aspect of that which is, uh, you know, you young people at university, you don't really know what you're gonna do, and uh, uh, sometimes you know the the course you're doing, but then you uh, you you you're confronted with all these opportunities to go mm -hmm. and do different things and how things happen. So I, I reckon that sometimes when I talk with about that with young people, just, just relax, just enjoy mm. what you're doing and enjoy the courses you're going for and be curious, right? So be curious about all the opportunities there, which one you're gonna get. So mm. it's a, such a combination of factors. So uh, very interesting to hear that. 
So uh, do you think that this is, how, I, I have a curiosity because you mentioned about this rite of passage uh, for Australian students that go to university and then travel for a couple of years and etc. I'm curious about that as a parent. So, my, my, you know, so having these conversations at home, do you think that today uh, this is still a thing? How you see the flavor of that sabbatical or work experiences overseas for for the Aussies? So, how you see that today? Yeah, I'm, I must admit I'm a bit out of date. Um, I have some of my nieces and nephews as reference points, but unfortunately they've been really affected by the COVID yeah. era and sort of missed some of that opportunity um, to spend university holidays and abroad or do exchange yeah. sessions. Um, you sort of start work and then I think the, the issue is once you start work, it's very difficult to then take a long break yeah. Uh, yeah. or it would, the, the perception is it would, it's quite a challenge. And just as you'd be aware, and particularly living in Perth, Australia's a long way from um, from many other places in the world. Um, Australians tend to, you know, as a general rule, really enjoy travel and exploring and adventure and discovery. And so I think it's just partly a function of geography that to be able to do a lot of that, it makes sense to kind of do it all in, or, or to cover off a lot of ground and, and a lot of experience in one at one point, yeah, yeah. Um, so and, and I think helpfully, um, you know, when I shared this with you know colleagues in America, for example, they were horrified at the idea of doing this, and how could they explain to an employer, you know, what what had happened in those several months, you know, if they didn't have maybe a not for profit to, to show for it or something to put on their resume, um, and I think Australians generally see it as broadening your horizons, being exposed to new things and, and probably being a net positive. Yeah. Um, you know, if you think of it from a perspective of evaluating someone's experience, yeah. you know, in, in a job situation, for example. Yeah. That's really refreshing to me to, to hear because uh, it's like coming, having come from Brazil, so the same thing, so that's sort of uh, uh, that sort of uh, thing scares someone that has seen that you know you have to be on top of everything that you do to be able to have access to jobs and mm. opportunities and etc. Yeah, the 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 uh, the chance of being misunderstood and having that mm. sort of period interpreted as something else and mm. affecting your professional life. So I think scares Brazilians way more mm. than you know, than the Australians. But it's refreshing that we can still see like that. So uh, another very interesting thing in your profile, in your story, is these, uh, your international experience you mentioned. So initially coming, you know, university related, just after that, UK and etc. That's a more like a tradition or not, mm -hmm. that is common. So, mm -hmm. But then uh, US and Latin America, can, can, you, can you elaborate a little bit more about that? global experience you have and, and then Middle East, so yes. Yeah, yeah, no, I think it um, probably all just starts with curiosity um, and desire to sort of learn and experience uh, new things and yeah. different cultures, different places, meet different people. Um, and I think for me, there was always a big value. I always personally placed a lot of value on that from a life experience yeah. perspective. Um, I probably could have managed my career probably a little better if I didn't do that. 
um, at different times and just focused on, you know, sort of staying at the same place and, and getting promoted quickly. Um, but uh, I, you know, always wanted to, to live and work in New York, which I did. I'd studied Spanish um, when I was traveling through Spain, did, did a, studied at a university there. Um, please don't switch to Spanish though, it's very rusty. Um, and so I was really curious about Latin America and at the time Latin America was a real growth frontier. This was sort of the mid 2000s. Yeah. Um, so there's a huge amount of economic activity, a lot of IPO activity, particularly in Brazil and Argentina and Colombia. So, um, so it was a really exciting place to be. Um, and then, you know, other, other times were just around being flexible um, and sort of available to the opportunities that presented themselves at the time, a little bit like the, the London startup situation, where when I graduated um, in Seattle, Lehman had just collapsed a couple of months before, so it was 2008. Um, so my plans to sort of go back to New York or work in a hedge fund, um, you know, were not, were not probable. Um, and at the time, the Middle East um, had a huge amount of capital. Um, oil price was like 130 bucks a barrel, um, and they were looking to deploy that to diversify their economy. So they were actively hiring. Um, so being wanting to be an investor, wanting to do something sort of personally meaningful, which was around the clean tech focus. Um, I was sort of willing, it probably wouldn't have been my first choice if I'm honest, but was willing to sort of um, make those trade-offs and, and sort of have, have that experience, which was, which was great. Yeah, very nice. So uh, interestingly uh, as well, so uh, when you talk about the experience you had with the startup in London, so you mentioned things about, you know, the people from Anderson Consulting that were coming along, so then, then you mentioned now about Lemon, you know, financial crisis to, 20, to 2008. Mm -hmm. So I think you were, you know where I'm coming from. Yeah. So, uh, and then you come to the current crisis yeah. and you know, have the uh, SVB uh, issue going on and now with Credit Suisse. Mm -hmm. So, and the way we, you know, uh, it's very common for professionals like us to, you know, part of our identities are connected to those companies we have been involved with. Mm. So, and you work for Credit Suisse mm -hmm. and, uh, and uh, you have a, you know, it's another collapse. Yeah. So, uh, how do you reconcile with that? So, is that, a, you know, what, uh, is a, what are the learnings of that story? Or, yeah. yeah. Well, I must say I don't take any personal responsibility. So it was about 15 years since I, <laughs> since I worked at Credit Suisse. Um, it's, it's really sad in the sense that it was once such a, a great brand and bank and operation. Um, and I, it has always been very helpful to me through my career as a sort of mark of quality or of experience. Um, don't know if that will change a little from here. Um, but it's interesting to sort of unpack some of these recent collapses and for me it's just so stark how much the banking system relies on confidence yep. um, and as soon as that sort of wavers it can all really unfold quite quickly. Um, in looking a little deeper into what happened specifically in the Credit Suisse case I think there was a lot of pretty poor risk management and as a professional non-executive director, um, I sit on a public board 
um, in the commercial insurance space, it appears to be some pretty poor risk management. And I think similarly at SVB, there was some pretty poor risk management yeah. in terms of their investment decisions, yeah. um, their lending decisions, their awareness of sort of the interest rate environment and what that might mean for their positions. Um, so pretty unfortunate. At the same time, um, you know, Antler hosted SVB late last year and they were a great sort of friend and partner to many firms trying to expand into the US who just needed a bank account to accept US funds. So um, it's good to see that they've found a buyer and, and hopefully, um, hopefully they can continue to provide that much needed access and, and capital to startups. Absolutely. So uh, it's funny with that sort of personal identity sort of aspect to it. Mm. So one of the first companies that I work in my career was a company called Lucent Technologies. Mm -hmm. And I was extremely proud, you know, Lucent Technologies, one of the 10 biggest companies in the planet at that mm -hmm. point in time. And I started my international career as part of that. Uh, and today I talk about Lucent Technologies, so no one knows what that, <laughs> what you're talking about. It just doesn't exist anymore. So, uh, yeah, I have a little bit of that scar in, in, in my mm -hmm. journey as well. So it's, a lot, it's good because, it, you know, it's learnings about uh, that sort of awareness that things are not here forever. If you mm. don't work hard, you know, never take for granted. Mm. So, uh, well, uh, I, as part of the Change the Game conversation, so I've always been talking uh, about diversity and mm. many of the guests that I have the privilege to have here are, you know, that, uh, awesome uh, pro women professionals, so mm -hmm. uh, you're not different. So I would love to learn a little bit more about your take on that. So you, you, you know, looking from outside, I can see a wonderful career that any person of whatever background, etc. I would love to have a flavor of it. Uh, and, and you have done that as, as, as a woman. So was that ever a challenge or maybe a little bit deeper there? So it was ever a needed to sacrifice something that you didn't expect to yeah. uh, in that journey? Yeah, and no, I've been reflecting on this quite a bit lately as we, as at Antler, we reconsider our approach to how we can best promote outcomes for women founders. Yeah. Um, we think that we occupy a really unique space in the founder funnel and that we scout founders into the career of being an entrepreneur and a founder. And so in that way, we have kind of outsized impact on how we can influence perhaps um, the gender composition of those founder cohorts. And then if we can invest and support those founders, hopefully we can switch the mix of the top of funnel that other VC funds um, see in their deal flow yep. and help to, to move to more gender balance in the founder ecosystem. So we've been thinking quite a bit about how we can do that and what practical steps we can take to do that, um, both at Antler Australia and then, you know, Antler as a firm globally. Um, and so as part of that, there's a lot of personal reflection about, you know, what have I found helpful or challenging or unhelpful in that context? Um, I think role models is one is one thing that we find really important um, and I think as an investment banker there weren't a lot of senior women bankers as role models yeah. and I think sometimes the lack of role models has a compounding effect 
um, because you can't really see a path for yourself or see someone that looks like like you, um, or you see them sort of having to make really difficult trade-offs or survive in a really challenging culture and you know choose to exit that path. Um, so that can be a bit, a bit compounding. Um, and in my time in banking, that was certainly the case. It was pleasing to see that the last couple of deals I've worked on, um, the senior women bankers leading the groups at the big banks have all been women. So that's been great. Um, when, I when I lived in Abu Dhabi in India, that was, oh, I'm sorry, led, led deals into India from Abu Dhabi. That was challenging in, mm. there were just very different cultural rules um, for existing as a woman, let alone a professional woman. So I think as an outsider, I was prepared for that and could reconcile that and respect it as a, an outsider of those cultures. Um, but when I returned to Australia about 10 years ago, I was pretty, I found it pretty confronting uh, in the, the, the mix or the position of women in that new professional setting for me probably wasn't materially better. Mm. So I, I founded a forum for women investors in private equity and venture capital. Um, there were very few of us to start with. There were sort of less than 10 um, that I could find. Um, and we were really focused about doing things that were practically help, helpful to help change the mix yeah. of women in investment roles. So the recruiters that we worked with, um, working with the industry body to talk about what parental leave meant because they'd never had parental leave before. Um, the only people that had had children were, you know, the, the stay-at-home carers of yep. the senior people. Um, and so whether it was women or men who wanted to take leave, that just wasn't a concept in the sector at that point. Um, so we tried to, to, and then sort of to practically share job opportunities and deal flow. And that kind of changed and evolved um, over time and has now been superseded by a structured membership group that's based on a YPO model that a few leading women VCs in Sydney have founded, um, which has launched, launched recently called WinVC. Um, so, and that's looking to promote not only women investors in VC, but women who have their own funds. So that's, that's a really positive contribution. I think from a, a trade-off perspective, um, I stepped away from full-time work for about six years when I first had children. Um, and did other things. I worked on another startup. I started being a non-executive director, did some consulting and um, had a couple of babies, one of which took a lot of hard work, um, uh, even before they were born. Um, so, so yeah, so there was the career break um, aspect of well as well, which you're, you know, according to Cheryl Sanders, not meant to do. You've got to keep leaning in and, mm -hmm. Um, but for me, I made a choice that at that point, that they, those weren't my priorities. Um, and then since re-entering, it's been incredibly um, positive to see the change in gender shift in investors. And not just as they had often been at the lower levels, but at the partner levels as well. So if you look at the likes of you know, Airtree, where I used to work, that's 50-50 partnership. Of, of men and women, and I believe their investment team is 50-50 as well. Um, so it's really positive to see a big change in the ecosystem and a much more sensible 
um, gender balance in investors. I think not so much when you think of people who have their own funds. I think there's still some work to go there. And there's still a lot of work to do in terms of supporting women founders. Um, if you look at the number of deals um, that supported businesses which had a, women found, a woman founder, um, and more importantly, the amount of capital that went into those, it's, it's materially underwhelming. Um, so, so that's where I think there's a lot more work to be done. Some fantastic stories, I love it. So uh, the last year uh, I had the privilege to do a trip to the Silicon Valley and one of the chats that we have there, so I learned that there is this explicit thing about the uh, female founder factor that actually reduces the capital to invest. Mm -hmm. So, for, mm. uh, you know, it's, it, and by the way, is explicit thing discussed, you know, mm. is that women get less money. Is that, you know, <laughs> even the fact that it's explicit make you reflect also, we explicitly bias, not, yeah, not right. unconsciously <laughs> bias. So. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, no, well done. So I'm, I'm happy to see a story that navigates that and do that reflection in terms of how can, who can we help more. Mm -hmm. uh, so tell us about Antler. So mm -hmm. uh, for the people that are not familiar with, mm -hmm. so what is it? Yeah. What are you guys doing? So Antler is a VC, yeah, so tell, mm -hmm. tell us more. Yeah, so Antler is uh, the, the world's early stage day zero global VC. Uh, started in 2018 in Singapore. Um, soon expanded to Australia, the Nordics in the UK, and is now in 25 cities around the world, including Sao Paulo. Um, it's in all continents, excluding Antarctica, of course. It's in uh, Africa. Um, so it's a, a global network of about 50 partners. Um, we've made 700 investments. Um, I think funds under management are approaching, change it all the time, I think it's approaching about 700 US. Um, and the, the premise is around investing, backing the exceptional founders that are you know, building the great companies of tomorrow uh, on day zero. So most of the time that works through an Antler cohort uh, where you'll scout and screen and select um, a diverse group of, of founders that may be technologists and builders, finance and, commer and commercial experts or domain experts, um, bring them into a cohort and there's a, a process of founder formation, team formation, founder matching, um, ideas validation and then an intense period of diligence and all that happens over about three months. Um, and then some of those teams will have an opportunity to pitch an investment committee and then they'll receive investment on fixed terms. They'll then go into the Antler portfolio where we'll continue to support them, provide follow-on funding, um, help them expand globally um, through the Antler network and provide access to even later stage capital through the Antler Elevate Fund. Cool. So. Uh for for transparency in this conversation mm -hmm. for the uh, listeners, so uh, I'm familiar with the model. Mm -hmm. so I'm somehow involved as an LP, uh, and uh, and I keep coming to reflect on the Antler model, and I see that you talk about day zero coming from you know very first 
founder with an idea mm-hmm. and getting together to with people that they never met before and become co-founders. Mm-hmm. Quite curious about that aspect of it because mm-hmm. can that work? Mm-hmm. So and the other thing as well, you said it's five years and seven hundred portfolio companies. Mm-hmm. So this is quite unique. So it's very rare in the globe. Mm-hmm. So it's a performance like that. So do you have a do you have some sort of insight? What what is that's different that mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. enables that sort of uh, acceleration yeah. of of investments? Yeah. So the premise behind Antler is to to build a, a global and distributed but really scalable platform for investing at at scale at high volume um, in a way that um, is also really mindful of diligence and quality. So um, from a as you mentioned, it's a it's a large number of investments. So there's intentionally a, a high degree of diversification, recognizing the risk profile of investing on day one. So we want to have less impact from companies who don't succeed and more shots on goals and ability to double down on those who do. Um, and it's a really capital efficient way to get that diversification because we're writing pretty small checks um, at the outset um, at really attractive valuations. So able to generally quickly realise an uplift on on most of our investees. Um, With the founder matching piece, um, when we think about barriers to entrepreneurship, which um, Antler, you know, sort of exists to overcome in many ways, one of them is access to capital. So those who don't, you know, have enough savings to get to a minimum viable product level, um, who don't have wealthy family and friends um, to just provide investment support. So there's near term, a near term path to capital, but there's also access to co-founders. So many people, you know, if you think of how, how co-founding teams are met, are formed, often they're from having worked together in the past, from having gone to university or from, from being sort of friends or family. Um, and that doesn't always result in the right match either. Um, So the concept is to bring a large enough pool of high quality founders together that have these complementary skill sets that can go into forming a team and have this really sort of high intensity pressure cooker environment where they're able to kind of get to know each other under an environment of, of some kind of time pressure. Um, where they're doing things like founder speed dating, but also structured design sprints and pitch sessions and idea validations. And we never specifically match certain people together, that all happens organically. And over time through cooperating on different design sprint activity and and founder driven design sprints that align around a particular area of interest, they'll tend to form teams. Some come into the cohort with a co-founder and others come in as a solo founder. So what we found um, over the period of Antler is based on our data, there's no greater incidence of um, founder breakup than in a, in a non-Antler or non-founder matching type mm-hmm. model. And we think that it's really important because it overcomes one of the other barriers, which is it's really difficult to, found, to, to be a solo founder because by definition, you're almost never going to have all of the necessary skill sets and experience, and you're not going to be able to execute as quickly with just one person. 
and it's going to be um, more of a cash burn if you have to hire in all of those people or you're going to dilute yourself. So um, so we find that the, the co-founder matching is a really core part of Antler, but it's also about the ideas validation, the coaching, the feedback, and the building with a community where all of these teams are forming together, they're learning by osmosis as to what the other founders are doing, they're having coaching and support, and they have sort of clear goals and timeframes um, to be able to prove out their thesis um, and, and to hopefully get our investment. Very good. Awesome. So uh, uh, I apologize for the audience. So, you know, it's giving a little bit of exposure to Antler in the platform, but, uh, but it's not about that. It's about because there are some new concepts being tested and being delivered and being, you know, as a execution. So you'd help people that, you know, is passionate about this environment to reflect on those, on those things. You talk about that set of, uh, you know, day zero, talk about the founders matching, talk about the, mm -hmm. The access to capital that doesn't exist in in a, in a mass capacity in that sort of early stage uh, that would help even other you know funds and and, and groups to, to reflect on you know how you activate that, that that's fantastic so uh, Kev thanks for being part of the show so I know you have a, a busy agenda in Perth so you're coming to visit for business and and you're very generous with your time to give us uh, some some of your wisdom. <laughs> so that's a privilege. I'm very grateful for that. And thank you. Thank you, Wilson. Really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for having me. So hello, everyone. So this is Changing the Game. So we had Kath Rogers today from Antler. And we're looking forward to uh, seeing you again in the next episode. So thank you very much.